You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith, and this is the Comedian's Comedian, the only podcast about comedy. Today, I'm live at South by Southwest talking to Ron White, who a few of you will know. Uh, We'll begin this episode talking about uh, a slightly ill-fated trip to the Leicester Square Theatre that he did recently. Um, So if you're in the UK, you may or may not know Ron. Everyone in America will have heard of Ron. He was one of the most famous comics on the Blue Collar Comedy Tour with Jeff Foxworthy and all. And um, he is just known for being a sort of Texan voice, a a young uh, guy who was in the Navy briefly, fascinating sort of background life story, made good and now in that position that we might in the UK associate with someone like Mickey Flanagan, whereby he can sort of, in a twinkling way, he can show off about having made money and uh, and receive nothing but love and warmth for it. Very, very funny. Um, This show, I'm going to warn you at the top, at the end of this episode, he uh, closes with an example of a joke that he refers to. The joke is very graphic. You will spot an initial reference to it, uh, and then he mentions it a few times, and then at the end, one of the audience questions, someone asks him to deliver the joke. I'll warn you again beforehand, it is really graphic, so consider yourself warned. But with that in mind, uh, I really feel that we managed to get some quite tender and quite sweet stuff out of Ron. Uh, I certainly enjoyed meeting him, so I hope you enjoy this interview with Mr. Ron White. It's nice of you to admit you had no idea who I was. Well, that's it. We, in the little preamble chat backstage, I took a risk and admitted I didn't know who Ron was. Now... Uh, this is nothing to do with your enormous profile over here, but you were telling me before the people of England, some of the people of England know who you are if they were at the Comedy Store recently, the London Comedy yeah, Store. Yeah, I did uh, shows and uh, they really play my stuff on TV over there so that nobody knows who I am. You're just like the whole rest of them. And, and uh, I did uh, shows over there. And uh, I called in and I talked to I was promoting the show and this, uh, this DJ, this is what this DJ said to me in London. He goes... Ron. <laughs> this boat, I have to say this boats well, very well. That was very We're all looking forward to the accent. He goes, Ron, every time a celebrity calls our radio station, we always ask the same question. If you could have a conversation with anyone, living or dead, who would it be? And I said, living. <laughs> and he tried to explain it to me. He was like, no, what I'm saying is... <laughs> Yeah, I fucking get it, dude. I'm uh, trying to make this funny, sell some comedy tickets in a land where they don't play my shit. And that must have been a really weird experience for you, given that over here, and for the benefit of anyone uh, listening to this in the UK, you are, you've sold literally millions of DVDs, hundreds of thousands of tour tickets. You've been gigging, touring hard. You were saying to me last night, your, your touring profile kind of exceeds your TV profile. Right. Even in the States, you're, you're a, a huge touring actor. Right, yeah, and none of that happened in uh, England. That yeah. No, and then uh, the, the experience I was going to tell you, I was going to bring up, I was going to go down to the comedy store, right, the comedy store in London, because I was playing right down there, kind of close to it, at that, uh, you know, where the Leicester Square Theater is, mm-hmm. except it's spelled Leicester for some fucking reason. <laughs> and, uh, oh, that was the sound of all the Brits turning off. There we go. <laughs> 
I'm just saying that's the way it's spelled. But if you ask somebody, Leicester Square Theater, they don't even they can't even get there to there. I mean, they're like, no, never had it. <laughs> so I'm gonna go down to the comedy store and just brush up on some stuff that I, you know, been working on. So I've been over here for a while. Uh, did uh, that the uh, what's it called the uh, Fringe Festival in uh, Scotland oh, yeah. before that, and then uh, Amsterdam, and. Uh, so it turns out it's a it's a gong show kind of a deal. So it's like an open mic night, but if this crowd doesn't like you, they gong your ass. And I'm like, well, fuck, I'll do it anyway. I'm great. You kidding me? I'm fucking probably one of the best comedians that ever lived. I don't like to say it out loud very often. I have to say, when you alluded but, to this story before, I had no idea it was the fucking gong show. That the is, gong show, that that's what it was. Incredible. And, I, and they were like, really? Because they gong people off. And I'm like, well, they're not going to gong <laughs> They're going to rush down and buy those last 27 tickets at the fucking Leicester Square Theater. And uh, so, anyway, my second joke was uh, about uh, baby duck pussy lip tacos. And it's, uh, you really have to hang with the joke to make it work anyway. And it's the second joke. And it's, uh, it's uh, I only eat baby duck pussy lip tacos that you can get at the Four Seasons in Beverly Hills on Sunday. See, this is uh, the response that gets right here. <laughs> And then one person goes, boo, boo, boo. And I'm like, no, 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 it's a really great bit. No, it didn't buck you, boo, boo, get off our stage. And they booed me until I fucking left. I'm like, Look, they, these people have no idea who I think I am. <laughs> They're lost. How, have you ever been booed off stage before in your 30 plus years as a comic? No, I've had crowds boo, but I didn't leave. <laughs> But they, there was no staying with this thing because that's what it was. You booed, you just got gonged or whatever, booed, gonged. Obviously, you know, given the express fucking exit. So, uh, but I can't think of it. I've seen other people get booed off stage. And that guy ended up, his name was Kenneth Springer. And he, was, he had quit his job and he had his wife who was a really big girl. And they had all of their possessions in a, a bicentennial Vega. The 1976 Vega came out with a bicentennial Vega that had strike. He had one of these fucking things and didn't even bring it up in his show. <laughs> it was the only funny thing I saw in his life, but he got booed off stage and the next day he goes, those people don't even know how to boo somebody off stage, right? And I was like, well, I don't know how they did it the last time you were booed off stage, but <laughs> if this one is paled in comparison, you've had some shitty fucking sets, dudes. What what does it feel like to be an act of moving away from the, the the comedy store incident, but actually performing at the Leicester Square Theatre, performing in another country where you don't have the profile that you're accustomed to after years worth of growing that crowd? What is it? Is it humbling? How do you feel about it? How do you feel going on stage to a? a it much just makes me room? think they're stupid. <laughs> No, you know, when it, it, well, they don't promote shows the same way I do, and this was all doing people doing me a favor. But you know, I thought they, they weren't doing it me as a favor. I thought they were doing it because they really thought this had some high end potential or whatever. But it was the uh, same guy that does uh, ACDC, so the, you know, this is not a big gig for him, uh, a promoter, and uh, so it's four hundred seats, and I'm like, one ticket sells the first week. I'm like, one. One fucking lonely motherfucker has decided to go. And then it would sell two and then maybe eight the next week. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? But because I thought for sure there would at least be enough pats over there that, you know, know who I was to come out and fill the show, which is inevitably what happened. But they just don't throw a lot of money at it. So they're not like whenever I put a show on sale here, you know, we throw you know radio budget. So they everybody knows right away. And but these guys just coast into it, and whatever's there, there that there is no big advertising budget. So, uh, it, but it was <clears throat> humbling. But it was also uh, we ended up selling out two of them. I did them in one night, and uh, and uh, there were some really big folks there from the London Times, and and uh, I got some really really nice said things said about me. And you know we're going to go back and do it again. I think I'm going to do another comedy club this time that uh, doesn't have a gong show on the uh, opening <laughs> night. So talk to me about the sorts of environments that you're performing in now. Because your, your career must have gone through several different phases from, from when you started out. Well, the bottom is about this. 
right around this area, right in here. Uh, you know, I play Radio City Music Hall in New York City. I play Madison Square Garden. I play every major theater in America. Then I also play uh, 100-seat, 65-seat comedy clubs. I'm, you know, I do stand-up uh, every night. Uh, I, live, I live here in Austin and also in uh, California. And every night I go to the store and the improv and the Laugh Factory and do sets. So uh, every single night. Uh, it's just, it's, uh, you know, that's, and it's the reason that my, my life is in the proximity of those three clubs. It's the same reason people live in New York. You know, they can just go out and do their show, showcase clubs and keep their, I forgot what the fuck question was. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, I guess. But yeah, so that's, that's so I, I, I play everywhere. That was the question. And, uh, but from the from the biggest nicest rooms in the country, uh, you know, to the little comedy clubs that I came up in, you know, that I still enjoy this type of thing. I would love to do a set here instead of this right now. But I'm not. stop clapping! It's not happening. No, no, we have another agenda here. Yeah, um, but in fact, you you can all chase uh, Ron as he goes down the street to perform at Esther's. I'll be in a petty oh, bike with. Us. Yeah. <laughs> like. Four it's funny because we passed somebody, and I felt like I was in better shape than that person was that was in the back of that, although neither <laughs> one of us were really pedaling at all. So let's talk about your Texanness. You are you're from Texas originally. I am. And you joined the Navy. I did. And you got kicked out of the Navy. I did. I did. I went in the Navy in E1, and I came out of E1. I was horrible at being in the Navy, obviously. You know, they, they uh, had a drug thing, and, you know, it just, it just didn't all weave together very well. <laughs> and, and from what I understand, you were actually, you discovered comedy whilst giving talks on drug addiction to schools. Is, is that correct? It's, wow, dude, where do you get this? I, um, I, it, 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 it was something that I did. I had a pretty, and my son's in the crowd, but it's not like he didn't know I didn't have a drug problem when I was young, but, uh, uh, but I did. And uh, so I ended up in this drug abuse program, and I went to work for him as a counselor. And, uh, and then uh, they started, you know, they'd let you come out and talk to these high schools full of kids and, and uh, about addiction and things like that, which was something that hadn't really been around before. And it just turned out I was really good at it. And uh, so I could make them laugh. I could make them listen. I was at home for the first time in my life, you know, just going, this is what I'm comfortable at. Because uh, there were some really famous people that did the same thing I did, and they couldn't do it near as good as me. So when I started doing stand-up, I already had that, you know, like a year or two of that, sometimes doing that twice a day for, you know, an hour of pop, you know. So that was a big, you know, big jump. That is completely unique in my experience. I don't know that that's... Is is someone... For a comedian's origin as a comic to be giving talks about addiction and discovering they were really funny. No, thirty-five percent of American comedians yeah. get into it. Had you? Did you have? Really amazing. Did you have aspirations towards performing before you went into that? Like, <clears throat> no, no, not, or nor did when I got out of it. Um, um, you know, my, I really learned how to do this watching my uncle preach. He was a Baptist preacher, and. Uh, and when I was a kid, I loved, you know, I really liked to go to church and, uh, and just, but what I really liked to do was listen to my uncle preach because he was funny. He was an amazing orator, uh, pace, rhythm, timing, Southern Baptist <laughs> killer. And, uh, and that's where I learned it. That's why I could do it to those kids, uh, doing, doing to whatever I was talking about. Uh, so all those things added up to, you know, giving me some direction. None of that time did I realize I was, you know, learning how to do what I was going to do for the rest of my life. No idea. And were you, the funny bits of those talks on addiction, were they funny because you were ad-libbing funny? Were they funny because you were, because of your rapport with the audience? Was it your persona that was making, I mean, were you writing jokes for them? Were you kind of prepping what you were going to say? No, I'm just funny. (laughs) I'm just funny. It's, uh, you know, it was, you know, I would go up there with really no plan at all, except for the, you know, basic framework. It was a lot like starting stand-up, except for nobody, it wasn't supposed to be funny. So, in fact, at one point, they said it was too funny. And I'm like, all right, well, I'll dial it back a little bit. uh, You're you're making recovery from addiction seem pretty fun. Right. Yeah, right. The lighter side of it. So, but yeah, but it all, you know, it all added up and that, and then that I was a big comedy fan. So, you know, I had all kinds of comedy albums when I was a kid, and I listened to them all the time. So between that and listen to my uncle preach and then doing this and then uh 
really it wasn't until the first time I was on stage, which was September 17th, 1986, at the Funny Bone in Arlington, Texas. Uh, first time I was ever on stage, I went, oh, I'm a fucking comedian. That's what I am. I'm a fucking comedian. And uh, I guarantee you, in, at the uh, high school in Deer Park, Texas, they don't talk a lot about the arts on career day. <laughs> and, uh, but I was, they just dawned on me. I'm a fucking comedian. That's what I am. And I was, like, relieved. And I was like, why didn't somebody fucking tell me? And, yeah. That, I, I think that experience, a lot of comics do undergo that experience. I remember in the oh, first yeah. few months of starting, I just felt like I had to pinch myself. I just, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm doing this thing. And I'm really interested in that idea of relief. Do you feel, bef- like, what... what where did that relief come from? Was it a sense that now you had a calling? Was it a sense that you, like, were you worried before you came to that conclusion that now you're a comedian? Were you concerned that you didn't know what you, what you were or what your place was in the well, world? Well, I wasn't really worried because I really had a pretty good job as a regional marijuana distributor in the state of Texas. <laughs> and and uh, that was going pretty good. And then I sold windows on the side. So uh, I was pretty busy. Didn't have a lot of time for developing other careers, but uh, but no, I just it, it's just I always you know fuck. I'm not the you know I, I've never been considered a bright person at all. You know I'd, uh, I I have attention deficit disorder. I have the attention span of a gnat, uh, and so I didn't do well in school at all. And I we had to go to classes where other people that were obviously weren't that fucking bright were in the same fucking class I was in, and. Uh, but I did know that there was this one part of my brain that was really, really good. But, I, but it never came up, you know? Except if, if I was at a party, I could hold court for fucking hours, you know? I could do that. But what's that worth? Millions. <laughs> fucking millions. But it, so I, I, I always wondered what it was. And so I think I maybe was curious to see if stand-up was what it was. And, but it was obvious that, uh, that, that, you know, this is the path and we'll see where it goes. And I never thought it would get here ever, not one time. That I didn't sit around thinking about maybe I'll be a big star someday. I was like, maybe I'll be the headliner at the punchline in fucking Sacramento. And, uh, and that, that's good enough for me. And uh, even after it happened to my friend, yeah, uh, fucking goes through the roof. I didn't sit there going, I'm next. I'm sitting there going, I didn't put in the work to, you know, to get where he got. There's something about your relationship to your audience. There's something about your persona whereby, as we've just witnessed, if you refer to your success, people are proud for you. They're proud of you and they're, they're excited. Do you know what I mean? There's a, there's a line in, in your album, A Little Unprofessional, where you talk about your, uh, you're having your own jet and say, I've got a jet that you people bought me, and I'm going to ride it, I'm going to fly it into bankruptcy. And the audience goes nuts. True story, by the way. <laughs> yeah, but that, do you see what I mean? That quality of that laugh, we're like... You're flying straight into divorce court. <laughs> I'm, and nobody wants that plane there, I guarantee you. Nobody I'm, else looking at that plane going, huh? I'm really fascinated by that relationship with your audience, where you can, you can almost strut your success... And rather than coming off as boastful, the nature of your relationship with your audience is such that they are proud of you and pleased for you. You can look at it two ways, and some people do, and uh, that, you know, you look at it as a small-town boy makes good. I'm from Fritch, Texas, so that's... When I lived there, they swear it was 1,400 people, but I know it was 700 people. I mean, I was fucking right there, and there weren't that many people. <laughs> and uh, so that's an odd place to be from, just up in the panhandle and... Northwest Texas, just a godforsaken fucking shit all of a town. It didn't have one fucking redeeming quality. And uh, so, uh, little bitty 800 square foot white clapboard house, dirt yard, uh, dirt street in front of it to this day. The house is still there, I believe. And uh, so, to, um, to uh, everything a man could ever dream of having. Uh, you know, sometimes people like that story, and some people don't, you know. Uh, I make my living talking about my life. I don't get my comedy from television. So uh, I have to talk about it no matter what it is. And uh, so some people uh, appreciate that. I would say I try not to rub my wealth in other people's face, but look at that fucking watch. So... <laughs> 
<laughs> but, I, you know, I, I do it as a thank you more than anything else, just a, a way to say thanks. I had no idea you'd do it for me. Do you think there was something I read about you, which is that um, you're not your your persona isn't someone? It's not the world making fun of a redneck; it's a redneck making fun of the world. Do you think that's true? Ah, shit, dude. I don't know. I guess I'm a redneck. I, you know, I'm an uneducated. My opinion means nothing, but I know I'm a real good dancer. <laughs> That's a John Cougar Mellencamp song. I thought I'd throw that in there for no fucking reason at all. What was the question again? I'm just... I'm a redneck, making fun of the world. I'm just well, not, me. Not, not, and, the, the question isn't so much whether you're a redneck. The question is, like, as compared to the other kind of blue-collar comics, I, yeah, what you were doing was different. You had a different relationship to them with the crowd because you well, weren't... Well, we, 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 you know, we were all different and individual, and, and uh, but, you know, I, I really don't understand it. Uh, every aspect of uh, my career, why it happened, where it happened, I, well, where it happened, I know where it happened, but, uh, but you know, what, you know, if somebody said, how would you do it again, I would still have no idea, and, and when, when somebody asked for advice, I can't tell them anything, because it was just such a, a personal fucking journey that ended up here, you know, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard uh, sometimes to look back at it and, and understand it, you know, much less think you fucking earned it. And uh, that I always, you know, kind of never do. I never think I earned it. I think it was handed to me. There is, I mean, that's... This is going to get dark as fuck. <laughs> I'm just going to keep smiling and being quiet and let it be dark as fuck. That's what right. the show is. <laughs> So this is Ron. Great fun talking to him. Really interestingly different perspective on comedy. A voice such as we have never had on this show before. Um, just, uh, you know, a really fascinatingly... What's a good way to describe someone who is older and has smoked and drunk every day of their life <laughs> and is pretty uh, leathery, but in a respectful way? Whatever that thing is, that's what Ron is. So a real pleasure to talk to him. And um, I was lucky enough to see him do a set later on. Charlie from South by Southwest had told me of a time when he sort of turned up at a an alt, far more of an alt room, and sort of listened and paid attention and followed it and went on and sort of tested and probed the audience and ended up finding out the way in which he could relate to them and then shifting up a gear and just destroying. And I saw him do something very similar at Esther's Follies in Austin uh, the night after we recorded this show. So more from Ron in just a second. Now, a couple of bits and bobs. Uh, had some brilliant uh, reactions to the new ComCom membership. So thank you to everyone who's signed up for that. You can go to comedianscomedian.com slash donate. And now, instead of just giving me money for nothing, you too can have access to the private podcast. There is a private RSS feed, which is only for subscribing donors to the show. And on that feed, we have such diverse elements as... And I'm just going to run down a list of them because we've got so many things. We've got all the extra content from previous episodes, including... Uh, James Acaster, Simon Munnery, Dara O'Brien, Russell Howard, uh, Kyle Kinane, even back, even way back when, we've got Sarah Millican's original appearance in 2012. Some extras from that. Uh, Mike Gunn, Alan Cochran, Stephen Grant, Noel Britton, I'm saying all of them now, Chris Gethard, Ellis James, John Robbins, and that is everyone. Uh, oh, Tez, of course, from last week. What a belter of an episode, Tez. Um, we've also got episode one of Comedy Critique, in which a uh, member of the ComComPod community, Mike Sheldon, has, uh, has got in touch, sent us a five-minute video of his act, and then myself and some other members have critiqued it and said hopefully useful things. So you can get involved with listening to that. That seems like a, a fun way to spend our time and a kind of benevolent thing to be doing in comedy other than reviewing it. Um, also, Peter Halliwell interviewed me for a thing provisionally entitled You Interview Stu. Uh, he's wor he works in startups uh, in Silicon Valley and interviewed me about some of my plans for the show and plans for the future. And, um, and we talked a little bit about the similarity between comedians and people who do startups. So that's really fascinating as well. And there's some more stuff coming on there soon, uh, later this week, I hope by the time you hear this. There will also be another episode. I haven't decided what thing this is. This is a Tri-Z's thing, uh, where ComCom listener and uh, long-standing uh, supporter of almost everything I do, Kate Webster, has uh, sent in a monologue, a sort of extract from a play she's writing about a stand-up comedian, and we talk about whether it's uh, whether her take on stand-up is 
realistic in in the mouth of the character and uh, diverse things around that subject. So that's more lots of stuff there and lots more coming up for everyone who is a regular subscriber and a, a member of the, the new ComComPod membership, which still doesn't have a name, so it's just the membership at the moment. So you too can be a part of that at comedianscomedian.com slash donate. And thank you to everyone who has already jumped on board and widened the circle of the ComCom community. Very hard to uh, think of that phrase without remembering uh, a certain very sordid and offensive Gary Delaney joke. So that's all of that. Um, You can still donate with a one-off payment if you'd like to. And remember, you can go via PayPal, Patreon, or indeed Moonclerk, if you don't fancy either of those, all at comedianscomedian.com slash donate, which will eventually change to comedianscomedian.com slash members when I get round to it. So that's all of that. Uh, the tour continues apace. If you're going to come and see me, I'm in Reading and uh, and Caution this weekend. But by the time you hear this, those will be a, a distant, fond memory. Um, coming up also, I'm at Mac. I'm at Mac. I'm in 180-seater at the Secret World Festival. And uh, it's over half full, gratifyingly. And I think we've sold about 110 in there now. So if you would like to jump on board that, there's a chance it might sell out, which would be so sweet. So come along to that if you're at Mac. Uh, Bristol, the Head and Chickens. Bath, the Rondo Theatre, Epic Studios in Norwich, Royal and Durngate in Northampton, Warwick Arts Centre, not in Warwick, Henry Tudor House in Shrewsbury, Swindon Arts Centre, Farnham Maltings, Aldershot West End Centre, and then into June, I'm in Sheffield, York, Newcastle, Leeds, Southampton, Cambridge, Edinburgh, Glasgow, Birmingham, Brighton, London, Tring, and Cardiff. So get on board for the tour, comedianscomedian.com slash tour. Thank you to everyone that's been coming out to that. Let us return to Mr Ron White. <laughs> One of the things that interests me is you talked as a kid about realising you weren't in the smartest class, you maybe weren't the smartest kid, but you had an understanding, you knew there was something there. And I think what you have done, and I, I, I don't agree that it's been handed to you, you clearly have worked my fucking than... ass off. I don't yeah, know why yeah. I think it's been handed to me. <laughs> yeah. Jesus, Ron, well, on, it worked. Wake up! Wake up! Well, There's a lot of shit here, son. You have worked hard. You yeah. must have worked. You've travelled hard. You've gigged hard. And you've earned your success. Do you, do you not feel that? No, I did. I know, I did. I just, sometimes I don't. You know, sometimes I think, I mean, wh- how hard did you fucking work? You know, you worked as hard as I did at whatever it is you're doing. You, anybody here did. They went to work. They figured it out what they're going to do. They're, uh, and they might not do something even that they love as much as I do. So, so do I deserve a place in Beverly Hills and a place in Austin and a jet? and a Fuck, fuck no, I don't. I'd starve to death in any other country on this planet. <laughs> But really, with this skill set, this doesn't pay in fucking Zimbabwe. You're like, where do you think I live in that goddamn country? Not but, in the but Beverly I think Hills of Zimbabwe. What, you, what you've managed to do is, is use your instinct rather than perhaps your intelligence. You've managed to use your instinct. No, I'm smart as fuck, dude. I'm, <laughs> that's where you get me wrong. I'm uneducated. My opinion means nothing. But I know... I'm a real good dancer. Yeah, well, I, I, I think, I know, I know you're being very funny, but there is truth in that, isn't there? You no. get, what you're dancing is the rhythm between you and the crowd. It is. That's exactly what it is. I'm, you know, it's just, what does it pay to, to, do, to do this, to become an expert at pace, rhythm, timing, punchline, setup, punchline, timing, just do it so goddamn much. I'm talking about a hundred and... I mean, uh, I mean, like three years ago, I was doing 145 cities a year, and uh, and I still do 110. So I still, you know, plus every night I do sets on the weekend. I mean, on during the week, I do, so I'm all on stage every night. Who knew that would add up to this? And does it always add up to this? Fuck no, it almost never does. It almost never does. Careers as as good as mine are rare as fuck, you know, just rare as fuck. And not that, I, and I, I never thought it would happen to me because I saw comics I thought were better than me not make it. You know, I watched Rich Jenny fucking bomb, you know, fucking move into the theaters, out of the theaters, into the theaters, clearly the best comic alive, and eventually blew his fucking brains out. You know, so, there, you know, there's no fucking guarantee, and there never was for me, and, I, and I'm grateful. You know, I'm grateful as fuck, you know, I, I, and I tip well. <laughs> I know you said you never know what to say when people ask for advice, but I'd like to ask specifically about rhythm and about what you feel, you, or whether, whether it is possible to 
pass on any of the secrets you've learned about rhythm. The way that you, when, when I first knew I, you were an option for the podcast, I looked at one of your Montreal sets from maybe 10 years ago, the one where you're talking about the plane and being like a tiny little plane, like a stick of chewing gum. Yeah, and I was howling laughing on the bus, which is uh, just revealed. I get a lot of buses. Laugh, right? yeah, yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? A not ideal environment. I had my headphones in watching this video. The rhythm, your relationship to the audience is... It's just incredible. It was, such a, it was such a joy to watch. So is there anything that you... Do you remember learning aspects of that yourself? Because you, you presume you oh, were You know, I tell him, and I mean this, uh, my Uncle Charlie's still alive. Go watch him preach. That's where I learned it. Uh, that's where I learned that, to be that personal uh, because he was. He was vulnerable. He was honest. And uh, he was getting it all out of one book. And... Uh, doing three sets a fucking week, all different stuff. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? That guy was a horse, man. I'm interested that you use the word vulnerable. Do you feel vulnerable on stage ever? I mean, you're such a, a, you're such a kind of powerhouse of a comic. Is there still, a, is there a, do you feel more vulnerable on stage or powerful? Um, you know... A little bit of both, I guess. I feel vulnerable when I do things like this, you know. Uh, but I always found that I could uh, shove anything aside and do a set, you know. So no matter what, you know, she says she wants a divorce. Ron, you're going on now. Fuck. <laughs> okay, everybody. Hey, you <laughs> and I get make it through it. So sometimes it's a place to hide, even though you're, you know, in front of 4,000 people. So... Um, you know, and, and, you know, now it's such a card trick that, uh, that literally I can carry on a conversation with somebody and still fucking murder out of this half of my brain. Uh, and I hate it when I'm doing that and I'm doing it because I don't like a crowd or because I've got something going on or something's pestering my, you know, I'm unstable or whatever. Uh, I hate it when I do it, but I can do it. And that's the skill level 50 or whatever. You know, that's something not everybody can do. Just talk to me a little bit more about what you mean by that. You can carry on a conversation. You mean you can be working through something in your head whilst killing it a gig? Yeah. And you don't like that you can do that? I don't like it when I do it because I don't feel as connected and it's probably not quite as good. Uh, I'm actually having a conversation with somebody else right now. <laughs> And, uh, <clears throat> but yeah, you know, that, that, that I, you know, I, I do, you know, I just shot a Netflix special. So especially if I'm not really working on anything in my, my set. So it's an hour and 10 minutes long and that's how much I'm going to do. And I'm going to do that because I just got it all grooved for that special. So I might as well do it now. And, uh, and so I know it so well, there's no notes on stage. There's no nothing. I just know it. And I do it all the time. I just do all those sets. That's so it's, it's all, all my stuff that I'm currently doing floats right at the fucking top of some pretty muddy shit. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, you know, so, so I'm, I'm going out there to just, to, to, I'll go out there and mop. I mean, I know how to do it. That's what I know how to do. That's what I could do from the early on. Even when I only had four minutes, I killed for four minutes. And uh, now that, I don't know why either, but I always could. Six minutes, I kill for six minutes. Now I kill when I'm on stage. I just, I, I generate a lot of fucking power and and I do it by being choosy, and the stuff is good, and I work hard at it, and and uh, I forgot what the fucking question was. Well, let's let's pursue this idea of work of working hard. This is how I got in them shitty classes when I was a kid, right there. The perfect example of it, right there. What? Someone told me that you are one of the few comics who will talk about the fact that you work with writers. Yeah. Like, that's very rare in, in terms right. of comedy. People, lots of comics at your level, I would imagine, lots of comics work with writers. Everyone sort of pretends they don't or they don't mention it or there's kind of associate producer credits on their album that you think, right. what, what actually is that? No, I don't give anybody credit. <laughs> uh, no, you know, I, I've always done it that way, you know. I've, I've, I always have. We had this uh, group of people called the Texas Hill Country Comedy Writers uh, that have been around since, uh, I mean, I used to come to Austin when I was a brand new, spanking new baby comedian. And uh, some of my friends have died since then. Some of them are in this room tonight. Uh, so we would, uh, 
uh, get together and table jokes, you know. We'd, we'd do it as there were eight or ten of us, you know, and so this is what I'm working on. Set it on the table. Let's see if we can figure it out. And you could, you know. It was a great way to write. Um, now, most of, uh, most of it gets written in a group environment anyway. You know, when I'm, I'm funnier when I'm talking to other people. You know, if I'm sitting by myself, I can be a grouch or a recluse or whatever, you know. And uh, so other people bring out the funny part of me, and they bring out the best writer in me. So when I started making money, I started renting these five houses on Lake uh, Travis, and then we go into Pooties and, uh, and, and, and buy the place for a couple of days and bring in live music. And then we'd sit around and write. We'd sit around and eat mushrooms, but... <laughs> Uh, but we should make some really good shit up, man, and uh, and uh, and it was just joyous time, you know, just joyous, just creative, and and uh, so I don't mind sharing credit with anybody, uh, you know. But, and we'd go to Pooties at night, and try the stuff out, and uh, and and uh, you know, it, inevitably, even if somebody else wrote the entire thing, uh, the hardest thing is to work the beats out on it anyway. You know, so you can start with almost any topic, and if you get seven or eight, we were watching that improv group last night that was just so good, and they were just start with nowhere, just good writers. You know, that's how quick it is that you can get to a punchline, something that's hidden. You can get there faster this way. Uh, the uh, and it's just something that's fun. You know, I, I think most things collaborative uh, or most things creative are, are somewhat collaborative. You know, no matter if somebody's stretching your canvas, you know, uh, and you're painting on it. Still collaborative, and, and and do you continue working like that? Do you still have some of those? I have still working. You? you know, I have it for a for a long time because I've just kind of been flush with material, and uh, uh, so I have somebody that you know helps help. You know, Twitter is what I do with material is not funny enough to do on stage. So, <laughs> so somebody else learns. Thanks how for to, admitting that. A lot of comics do that. Yeah, right, <laughs> right, right, right. Well, that. right. That, that's <laughs> the, the bin there. So I, somebody else figures out how to say it in that many characters and decides when to post it or whatever. So somebody, and then if anybody of my friends says anything funny, it's going straight to Twitter. And uh, so, and, and all my friends are funny, especially the ones that aren't comics. And uh, I've been blessed with some amazing friends. So when you put together the Netflix special, can you give us an example of a piece of material that you considered putting on that and then decided not to? Like what kind of editing? Baby duck pussy lip tacos. (laughs) (laughs) Because of that horrible experience I had in London. I almost took it out of the whole fucking show. No, it's a good bit. I swear to God it is. uh, You know, it's... The hard... if you're a joke and I'm working on you, go on. Uh, your work is cut out for you because you're, their odds are you're never going to make it into the big show. Okay. And uh, but if you do, I love you, and uh, and I will nurture you and I will help you grow. And uh, you have to help though. You have to be a good fucking joke, okay? And uh, I don't care if you're odd. I don't care if you're baby duck pussy lip taco. I got you in the fold, and I'm bringing you in. And it doesn't matter. People say it's not fucking funny. I'll tell them, fuck you. I don't care what you think, which I genuinely don't. And, uh, you know, I'll nurture these bits in. And, well, as I nurture a bit in, I have to nurture a bit out. You know, something's been in the show too long. I got to put because I don't like it to get long. I don't like it. I like to be about an hour and ten. And... Uh, uh, so I, anytime something comes in, something's got to go. So uh, and uh, that's how it works. And uh, and it takes me about two and a half or three years to write that entire last special. It took three years to write it completely out of the show. And once I've done that, then I'm ready to shoot another special. But now I really just want to tour with this act that nobody's seen. Uh, that took me three years to write. And I was, but I never quit doing shows. That's the reason I can do it at all. But I'm not prolific. Uh, I will say that about me, and uh, I'm not like uh, CK and those guys that can spit them out every year. Uh, but I believe some of that material is better if you leave it on the vine for a while because some things that are... Uh, I'll give you an example. There was a setup to a bit, but it was supposed to be the whole bit. I don't know what it was, but I don't even know why I put it on the album or why I thought it was funny at all, but the bit, the punchline was written after the album came out. So... I had to really talk to Netflix about letting me put the punchline to the last album in this fucking album because it seemed like a bit of a stretch, but they let me do it. 
And uh, but it was uh, my wife bought me a bicycle, thinking I might ride it. It's for sale. And if you're looking for a bicycle, it's a great deal. It's got 750 yards on it. It, it's, uh, it was a demo when I bought it. It had 350 yards already on it, but I put the other 400 yards on it myself. That was the whole bit. Here's the punchline. So if, you're, so if you want to buy the bicycle, just go to my house in Beverly Hills, and it's 400 yards from there. <laughs> so that, you know, you... you, you that sat on the vine for a long time before I saw that part of it, and I probably didn't even see it. Some of my, usually, that's where my friends really, really help. Is uh, they'll either hear me say something in conversation that I'll never write down or never repeat again, and they'll put it in their phone or whatever and remind me of it, or they'll watch a set and jot down little notes of here's something that you, uh, you know, here's a tag or whatever, and. Uh, so that you know, in, the, in that respect, you know, my my friends are really valuable, and I, you know, and I also hope that uh, that that I'm valuable to them too as a writer. I mean, I, I wrote, I don't know, fifty or sixty. You might be a redneck jokes. My favorite one was uh, for Jeff uh, was um, if if anyone in your family proudly displays a collection of automobile shaped cologne bottles. <laughs> You might be a redneck. And when I told Jeff that, I mean, the second I told him that, he goes, that 57 Chevy is half full of English leather. <laughs> that guy's fast. You want somebody to help you fix a fucking joke? Call Jeff Foxworthy the fucking machine. He is so creative and so good uh, for so many reasons and prolific and the biggest selling comedian of all time. When you're... When you're at the kind of at the head of the, the table, so to speak, when you're asking people for their advice, you're asking your friends for their advice, they're proffering ideas, suggesting tags to jokes, and, but it ultimately boils down to you and your decision about what makes the show. I know you, you say that you, are, uh, that you don't care about anyone else's opinion. If you've got an idea for a joke, even if people are like, oh, that doesn't work, you're like, no, I believe in it. Yeah. There's still got to be some kind of reflexive thing with the audience. Have you got a bit that you have just hammered an audience over the head with and could never get it as funny to them as it was to you. Baby duck pussy. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I'm still committed to it. Don't worry, honey. Don't Four worry. years from now, Don't next worry. special. Yeah. No, no, it's in the last one. I put it in. <laughs> it's not, now you're going to think just, it's a horrible bit. It's not a horrible bit. It just took a minute to stew. But uh, what was the question? Oh, just, I'm just interested in, in the amount of self-belief that you have that you go... Obviously, you've been doing it long enough to go... No, oh, I've got a good eye funny. for stand-up comedy. It's good. I mean, I've got a really good eye for it. And uh, now, the, the whole trick is for me to write it down when I think of it, because I don't have a notebook. You might have noticed that backstage. I've never had a notebook. Uh, it all just goes into this fucking weird head, and it comes out some way. And... Uh, but so it's something's got to catch it. But I, I film most of the sets I do. So, you know, if I really think I, you know, I, I usually I can get to the stage quick enough with that thought that I can try it out. So, um, but and, and also, it's not like we have a big system where there's ten of us that sit down at a table every night. Right? That happened years ago. Uh, I, I, I right now I don't have a relationship with another writer. Uh, other than to help me do the tweets and things like mm -hmm. that. So it's uh, this the stuff I'm doing now. Other than just, you know, bouncing it off of everybody. There's not a, a team in place or anything like that. And I'm not saying I won't put one in place because, I you know, now i got to rewrite it again. So And I want it to be good. That's the only thing that matters to me is that it's good and that uh, my fans are getting what they deserve for the money that they're paying. And, you know, I, I, you know, I'm not afraid to do the work and I'm not afraid to bring somebody in to help and does that cause you any stress? Does that cause you any... That did. They left. <laughs> God damn. What time is it? Is that... We've only been doing this 42 fucking minutes. Wristbands. Right. Wristbands, man. I, I thought it was... No right. commitment with the wristbands. Unbelievable. <laughs> Given how provocative some of your material is, is there a price to pay for that, for being able to say the unsayable? Is there like... Have you, have you ever done material... I don't really... I don't perceive my show to be that at all. Uh, I don't I, I don't find any part of my show offensive one single bit. Now, not everybody in the world would agree with me, but uh, but I don't 
you know, I don't, I don't cover any subject matter that I don't feel like I can back up. Uh, there is, I mean, it's true, nothing's off limits if you're good enough to write about it. And I don't think I'm good enough to write about everything. But the stuff that I do put out, I, you know, I feel like it's just jokes, you know, so you can, you know, you can move right on past it if you'd like. Uh, but I don't think it's particularly controversial, you know, that, uh, you know, not in a big way. Um, not outside of baby duck pussy lip tacos. That's, <laughs> no, I don't think so. I just don't agree. I just don't think it's that. It's not, a, you know, cutting edge. You know, I don't think it's cutting edge. I don't think it's anything. It's just, you know, it's just my observations and what I think. You know, that's all it is. It's interesting to see those observations kind of reflect the, the time that they're from. When, when I talk to a comic who's been going for 30-plus years, I can see material of yours online from the 90s, and you can almost track cultural changes through how a comic on stage is talking about a particular I issue. I had cone titties for two years. <laughs> no, I didn't. No, Please. I didn't. I didn't either. Uh, you know, it, it, it is pretty documentable. You know, you can just watch me get older and older and older as <laughs> time goes on. People, whenever they see me, they, they're really surprised how old I am because what they might have watched might have been 15 years old, you know, and I guarantee you I was 15 years younger 15 years ago. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, you, but you can. It's an evolution, and I can, I can tell. And that, you know what, I, if, I don't mean to sound braggadocious, but this will sound very braggadocious. I believe I'm a better comedian now than I was a year ago. Uh, I, I believe that as an artist... Uh, that I've continued to grow, you know, and, and try to get better. And uh, and I can watch stuff that's... A, 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 you go back and watch the last special, which I thought was... I could never recreate it again. And, and I was, like, really kind of disappointed with uh, with the performance. Uh, so, the you know, I, I, am, uh, I am proud of that. I saw some of your material from... It was on a Comedy Central special, I think, from 2003, which was a piece about homophobic people and your homophobic friend. And it was interesting because I I could see in that bit almost a reflection of a bit of material you'd done maybe 10 years earlier than that where you had talked about... it's It's a really funny story about you and a gay friend of yours who works in TV going for dinner together and your kind of incredulity at this incredible woman walking past saying to your friend you know, does that not do anything for you? You mean that you're more interested in me and the, you know, the, I butchered a payoff for you, but, you know, the, like, you're... He, he butchered it so is, bad, I don't know what it is. No. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't do anything for you? You'd rather you, have sex with me than her, not by yeah, much. Yeah, not by much, got, exactly the bit, right. Yeah. So, it's interesting, something... Yeah. <laughs> what if I lost some weight? Bleach my asshole or whatever color. It was interesting to me that you prefaced that story by saying to your audience, so there's this friend of mine, he's gay. I've never said anything to him about being gay. And that kind of jumped out as like a thing from the 90s that you might need to say to your audience, depending on who they were at the time, hey, you know, this, this guy's gay, but, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not a big deal to me. In, in a way that, like, culturally, culturally now, you wouldn't have any need to. I think really the point was that I had never spoken to him about the subject, which is what makes this funny. Uh, that, I, that I'm not saying, hey, you know, I'm not, you know, whatever. It, I, it was just the fact that I had never spoken to him about it uh, is part of the setup to the punchline. So, but uh, I don't think it was me warning or, or make. I, I get you. Uh, but I think it's just me setting the joke up right. I think that I, I think that's what that is. Do you well, think? Fuck, do I know? Do you think you have the same sensibilities as your audience? Do you think that you're more liberal than some of your audience because you work in the arts or because you work in entertainment? You know, do you do you think that? Yeah, you know, I I, I don't. Sometimes I don't give them enough credit. Um, because I'll think something is going to be, and I'll think something's funny, and then I'll not, and I'll think they won't think it's funny, and uh, and that's that's kind of shitty of me to think of them that way, you know. And I rarely do, but sometimes I do. I'm like, nobody's going to laugh at that, and and then I'll do it, and it fucking murders, and I'm like, you fucking snob. <laughs> if it's funny to you, it's funny to them. What makes you so fucking special? So, 
and uh, so one of it was uh, this is an old old piece, but it was about uh, the lint and the dryer. Uh, my, it was about an ex-wife had a lot of money, and she said, "Honey, the dryer's broken." And I'm like, "Did you check the lint filter?" And she goes, "Lint filter." I'm like, "I'll get it." And I open it up. She's like, "Is there anything in there?" There's a quilt in there. <laughs> So I never thought anybody would laugh at that because it's just stupid and, you know, it's not a quilt and it doesn't look like a quilt, but the word quilt is funny. <laughs> and sometimes a crowd will, uh, uh, one time I did a, a story about finding a golf glove in my bulldog's turd. And it was a true story. He had eaten a fucking uh, golf glove. And, uh, and I'm looking at this turd and I'm like, what the fuck? It says something on it. And it did. It said... <laughs> I said, Midland Park Golf Course, and I've looked down at it, I'm trying to read it. And so I said, I said, I went in the house, I just started telling the story, it just happened, you know. I went in the house and uh, got my glasses, because I can't read shit without my glasses. <laughs> and I didn't mean for that to be funny, but it fucking murdered, and I'm like, oh, fuck. Yeah, they're going to, they, every once in a while, they'll teach me one. So. We, uh, I know you have a show to get to, so we, we must wrap up soon. But I wanted to ask about whether you find it stressful to create a new show. Do you ever feel the dread that a lot of stand-up I always writers... say I'll never do it again. Really? Uh, you know, I've said it this time. I don't think I'll ever do another special. If I do, I'll, I'll have to retire. It's, it, 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 you know, it's, I, I, I question myself, do I, can I even do it again? You know, and and I've done that for the last three, and I've continued to kind of do it. But, you know, I'm 61 now. I'm like, really? Uh, how long is, you know, when I when I first got big about 15 years ago, I've done nothing but wait for that to end, to expect it to end, that it's not going to go far, that these kind of rides are very, very brief at the top, if they happen at all. And uh, and so I've just sat around going, it's got to end. It's got to fucking end. They're gonna, they're, they're not gonna quit listening. They're gonna quit listening. It's gonna be. They're gonna get bored with it. They're gonna whatever. And uh, and you know, and they haven't. But I still you know question whether or not I can you know write something as good as the one that just put out was my favorite work so far. But you know, I haven't written dick since then, so I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see what happens. Has stand up made you happy? Yeah, you know, I, <laughs> I, the other day I was tripping and I just <laughs> started. No, I wasn't either. I, what I was, I, I did done some edibles and I was in my bed in my back of my bus and I just started thinking about the time when I was a, a office manager for a crude oil trucking operation in Luling, Texas, and I was like 22 or 23 years old. That's story short, man. <laughs> you know, <laughs> And I was just had no reason for anybody to give me this job, and it was just the most dead end, bizarre. My life is fucked, and I'm literally laying in my bed for no reason. I'm in Shitville, Ohio. I don't know where the fuck I was, but I just started laughing out loud at me, you know, at the at the at laughing at the ride, you know, what I tried to fool people into thinking I could do versus what I could actually do, and uh, and. And how it took me a long time to to realize it's just okay uh, for me to be true to my nature and uh, ride that out, see where that has to, you know. That's and that's the advice I give, and the only advice I can give other comedians is uh, be true to your nature. That's plenty. You vary from that, you're fucked. <laughs> We've just got a few minutes left. If are you happy to take questions from the audience, sure. There's one more burning question I'd like to ask, given the amount You're of... choosing yourself. Yeah, I'm choosing myself. It's my right. Get, get your own podcast, mate. Um, uh, what, the one thing I particularly wanted to ask was, given the amount of comics that uh, I think we have all seen burn out due to overwork or alcohol or <laughs> Are you trying to make cigars. me cry, dude? This is... No, my question is, how are you alive? Uh. You know, that's a good question. Uh, number one, tequila is the answer to that question. I, I own and drink my own tequila company. I don't drink the entire company. But I'm, <laughs> I guarantee you, if it wasn't for me, we'd be out of business. 
Uh, you know, I don't know. You know, I, 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 we we check my we monitor my health close because I, I have quite a few employees. I got a couple of companies and a tequila company, and I do some other things too. And and uh, they, I just got my reports back the other day. My doctor told me uh, he told me two things. He goes, Ron, you cannot gain any more weight. And I said, that's what I thought. <laughs> And he said, your liver function is perfect. And I'm like, what do those motherfuckers drink that have cirrhosis of the fucking liver? What are they pouring down their fucking throats if I don't fucking have it? So I got work to do. No, I, you know, I guess good genes. And my father died young. My father died at 51 years old. Of, he had a heart problems and cancer. And uh, my mother's 84. We just celebrated her birthday uh, in a big way down in uh, Florida. And... And uh, she's kicking around. Henri likes to get hammered and gamble. <laughs> that's my mom. So Cherokee, I guess that's what, we got a lot of Cherokee in us. Questions from the audience? Just we probably fit in one or two before we finish. Where's your favorite place to perform in Austin? Oh man, you know I, I'm doing a set at the uh, at Esther's Follies here in a little while. Uh, I used to play back at the Velveeta Room back when it used to be an abandoned strip club, and we. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> we had too much fun in that fucking place. You know, I still do sets at Cap City. I live here now part of the time, and so I go up to Cap City and do sets. And uh, I'm going to start uh, opening some shows for uh, Bob Snyder at Saxon Pub on Monday. And uh, if we can just figure out the logistics of it, moving shit around, it's kind of a small stage. But I go there almost every Monday. I'm in town just to watch Bob. I'm a big fan. And uh, so... Uh, I play Bass Hall. The next play is going to be the ACL Live because I love that venue. I mean, it's fun to watch shows there. And, uh, but, uh, you know, I'll always have a soft place in my heart for um, uh, but, uh, but I, the one I can't remember. Right, right, the one across the street or right down the street, the uh, Paramount. Yeah, the Paramount, I've done, I've done a million shows in there, too. So uh it, austin is my favorite city and, and that's you know that's why I, I choose to live here and uh so uh you know anytime i'm hanging around come up and say hello i'm pretty approachable just popping in here to remind you that we're going to close the episode with ron telling this joke and it may not be to your taste i think it's fair to say that it is it's a pretty graphic and, I mean, you know, you've heard what the subject matter is, and that is very much the cutesiest tip of the iceberg of this particular joke. So uh, now that I am assured that you have been sufficiently warned, please enjoy a very funny and brutal joke from Mr Ron White. OK. I, 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 well, yeah, I told you where I'm from, right? And uh, now I live in a house in Beverly Hills uh, that I, uh, my wife and I just built. And I was doing an interview the other day, and this guy asked me, has it changed you, uh, the fame and the fortune and all that? And I said, I don't think so. But I kept thinking about it, and I realized it's changed me in two ways. One, while we were building this house, my wife selected these really exotic Japanese toilets. And as you approach these toilets, the lid of the toilet automatically opens. Now, I was mad when I first saw it, but... I, you know, I got used to it after a while, and and now when I approach a toilet and the lid doesn't automatically open, I just piss all over the top of it. And I still eat tacos, but I only eat the baby duck pussy lip tacos that you can get at the Four Seasons on Sunday in Beverly Hills. What they do is they take these baby ducks and they just snip the pussy lips off of them. And it takes like 35 baby ducks to make one taco, but it is fucking worth it. <laughs> and it turns out they've been snipping the pussy lips off of baby ducks in Saudi Arabia for 1,500 years and just throwing them in the river. And the cook from the Four Seasons went there and saw this amazing waste of baby duck pussy lips and just started thinking, fuck, you know, tacos. <laughs> PETA hates it. <laughs> they do, and I don't know why, because they used to sell duck tacos. Nobody gave a shit. You got to kill the duck to get the duck meat. You don't have to kill the baby duck to get the pussy lips off of it. Sure, they bleed to death in the trash can when you throw them away, but they're baby ducks. 
It's a nickel for a hundred of them. Nobody gives a shit. So if you're ever in Beverly Hills on Sunday uh, night, go to the Four Seasons. It's baby duck pussy lip taco night. And uh, get there early because parking. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for having me Please on. Please join me in thanking Mr. Ron White. <laughs> So I was going to do a big post-amble at this point uh, because some of you noticed that I uh, briefly alluded to the fact that my wife is pregnant once again and we're expecting a baby at the end of October. A second. A Boutros Boutros, if you will. Uh, I had a little soppy post-amble all recorded and then when I finally put the episode together, uh, me and Nathan realised that it maybe didn't sit so well after the joke that we've just heard. (laughs) I don't know that I felt entirely comfortable this particular episode, of all episodes, being the one where I uh, wax lyrical and soppy about the impending new arrival. So I will save that for another time. I'll still send you the same thing. I'll send you, you know, I'll still chuck it on the end of next week's episode and I'm sure uh, when you hear it, you'll go, yeah, maybe that maybe that would have been a, a, a bit of a dizzying clash. Um, so suffice to say for now, I won't post Amble at you. I hope you enjoyed that episode. It was tremendous fun talking to Ron and um, that will do me for now because I have other fish to fry. That was a poor choice of words, given the context. I'll speak to you soon. Thank you.